Welcome to Bird Camp Podcast. This is a show dedicated to the pursuit and promotion of upland birds, specifically the rough grouse. So if you like sitting around a campfire with your favorite bird dog and two brothers from Michigan who love talking about upland hunting, this podcast is for you. So let's put another log on the fire and start the show. This is Bird Camp. Welcome to Bird Camp, episode 15. Matt and Kevin are here, and we've got a log on the fire, and we're getting ready to go. Today's episode, episode 15, will include a gun review, which is one of our regular segments. We also have Nick Green from the MUCC on, and we'll talk to Nick about uh, what the MUCC offers and what they are doing. And at the end, we're going to have a contest, we're going to have our contest winner for our it's our Onyx, Onyx. Elite subscription. I was going to say X Man. So it's Onyx. Yeah, it's a one year subscription to Onyx. We are giving these away for to coming on and telling your bird story. We have a hat full of people that sent up to us, and we're going to draw a winner at the end of this podcast. And for those new to this podcast, explain to our yeah. audience what we're about. Our, our mission is we want to uh, bring upland hunting in Michigan and outside of Michigan um, to a wider audience. Our, our objective is really to entertain and to educate, and with Nick on today, you'll get a lot of the education on that one point, but we want to ed- educate, entertain, and make it a fun experience and uh, keep everybody interested in bird hunting until we get to the fall. Yep, and we do some interviews, and that's part of the education part. Right, right. So let's kick off and go into the gun story. Um, we're we're going to have several of the, we're going to kind of do this as an ongoing one. And All right. Today we're starting with Matt's first bird gun. Yeah, other than the 16 gauge that our father let us borrow. You still have that? I do. Um, Not in good shape. No. Okay. It's actually yeah. at mom's house. Yeah. Um. Anyways, other than that, this was my first, my own gun, other than borrowing one from my older brother or my father. Um, it's a New England Firearms single shot. Actually, do you want to play Vanna? Sure. There you go. Straight, straight stock, but yep. not not an English stock. It has more of the hump here. Go ahead, man. It breaks open like that. Um, I forgot what's the uh, model on that. The model is Pardner. Yeah. Not partner, partner. But the background on the New England firearms, um, they were set up obviously in New England and. Uh, Massachusetts, Gar- um, Gardner, Massachusetts. That, that's why it's called a Gardner. It's made in Gardner. Excellent. I just saw that. Go ahead. Um, I'll just read an article I found attempting to explain the history of the present standing of New England firearms as something akin to describing the infield fly rule in baseball. <laughs> so, basically, New England firearms um, is more of a trademark now. It's been bought and sold. Um, it was operating, I assume, when I, you bought this gun for me for my birthday in 1993, we think, yep. about that time frame. Um, it was maybe still part of H&B, or H&R, which is Harrington and Richardson's, uh, Harrington and Richardson, 
and that was a company on its own and they're actually a very popular company and they came up with frank wesson and you know smith and wesson um so they were part of that group and the h&r was its own group um they make a lot of firearms that people may not be aware of um they struggled through the 80s and then they were bought out by basically remington um then remington bought out was bought out or merged with marlin um, but now they're part of the freedom group which Freedom Groups out of Chicago, Illinois, and they own about 14 to 15 gun manu- firearm manufacturers. Oh, really? Interesting. But they're not producing, as far as I could find, the New England firearm anymore, trademark, oh, even shame. though they own it. Um, the funny thing is, is when uh, you bought this gun, you said it was well under $100. Like, oh, it was $60, I think, or 80 Yeah, it's just a 12-gauge new, single new shot. in the box. Yeah, that yeah. you probably bought at a sporting goods store. I don't recall where I bought it, but it was new in the box. It had never been fired. Yeah, so I tried to look one up, which I have one right here on my computer. And um, Now, remember, this is a single shot. That's why it was so cheap. Here's one on Gunbroker. Same exact gun. Comes with the box, which I actually still have, and the uh, paperwork. $230. That's a good investment, by <laughs> That's you. a good investment. <laughs> For you, you, you get to reel the benefits of it. It's kind of an interesting gun. The, the, it does kick a little. It, well, I'll get into that, but... The, the forearm is beautiful. It's got a beautiful forearm on it. And the stock, at one point, was it's still a good stock, but it has some shoulder wear on it, which is typical of an Upland Hunter because you've shot it. And yeah, shot that gun a lot. I carried that for the first probably... Ten years? Yeah, yeah. well... And it's funny, the wear, the wear marks, marks on the stock are exactly where your hand would go where your shoulder would come in. Yeah. And so it, it, a lot of that's probably for just carrying it through the woods. With it's the just carrying it. You can yeah. see that, but even that 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 makes a patina. It makes it a more attractive gun to me. See the patina on it now, and it's coming in, even on the metal. The metal almost looks like a ti- what do you call that tiger? I don't know what you're getting at. I'm not sure. Uh, they would call it a burl in me- in wood, but it's it's got a, like a I don't know if you can see that, but it's got a really cool pattering on it uh, on the. Uh, actual metal here kind of kind of different look to it it's really nice but go ahead so but that is a basic single shot shotgun um that you could get into for under a hundred dollars there are different guns very much like this today on the market by different manufacturers um that you can get into for uh, 100 to 150 even at, if you go to a gun show or used market definitely under 100 dollars. and a lot of people say a single shot it's a single shot well i tell you rough grouse hunting one shot's about the best shot you get usually you get two sometimes three but um i we i can attest this this gun has knocked down birds and what i liked about it when i first got into dogs um that was a lighter gun then later i moved to a side by side then over and under it's a very light gun and it's easy to handle and you know you only have one shot so when you're paying more attention to your your puppy your dog as well as your other hunters having one shot um you know i didn't get a lot of shots when i was working with a young dog but it just made things simpler for me at that time Right. Um, but this gun does shoot very straight. I had that very long shot. 71 yards, your first yeah, bird. Yeah, with this gun. With this gun. Like he shot through the eye of a grouse, but it, it uh, worked out that day. Worked out that but day. But I had a lot of misses with this gun, too. <laughs> well, one thing, uh, we were hunting probably that same trip, um, and it was getting towards the end of the day. 
and as it does in the northern Michigan, it got real gray and dark, but it wasn't sunset yet. We were still legally hunting, and some Sharpies went up, and I know I was behind you. You were in the shooting position, and you shot, and it was so cool because <laughs> there was about two feet of flame that came out the end oh, yeah. of this gun, and I'm sure you see that on other, and there's probably ballistics reasons, but it was just, I just still remember that flame shooting out of that gun at the right at the end of the day in the dark, and it was like... That's pretty powerful. Yeah, but. I don't even remember like what shot <coughs> or anything like. Well, we were carrying steel because we were duck hunting that same day. Yeah, so yeah. It was we, we had limited it on sharpies. In fact, I think that shot you were shooting at a duck, and I was just no, it was definitely aggressive. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah but I, uh, I, I got to tell you, I never go hunting with one gun. We've all been burned, right? Yeah. This is an excellent second gun, in my opinion. Or a first gun. First gun for a new hunter, but it's an excellent second gun because it has less mechanical parts. Mm-hmm. And and you can break that gun down really You easily. can break this gun down in seconds and with basic hand tools. And uh, it's, it's not a gun like an it, automatic gun where you're going to have a failure or a jammed. It's so simple. There's it's just simple. It. Crack it open, open, firing pin, one shot. And yep. Um, that's what makes it a great second gun is its dependability. Yep. And I haven't seen you hunt with it in quite a few years. I haven't. I keep it in the gun safe, so I'll yeah, probably yeah. give it to my son here in a few years. Yeah, he'll, he'll get that twenty eight and then this, huh? Yep, that's so. the plan. Well, so, that's our uh, gun segment of the <coughs> podcast. We're going to move on with our um, interview with Nick Green of the MUCC. Those of you on video, you're going to have to listen to the podcast. So thanks for watching. We're out. Here's Nick Green. It's a Bird Camp podcast. We're back in the studio, and today we are very honored to have uh, Nick Green from the MUCC with us. Uh, Nick, how you doing today? I'm doing well. Awesome. We're, uh, I, I guess I missed the podcast number, but this is six this year? Uh, this is 15 total. 15 total. So we're off and running. Podcast going well, but... We've had questions about MUCC. We've had questions ourselves about it, and uh, we we contacted you because we want you to come in, explain the conservation, the programs, and everything. So we'll just kick it off. Why don't you start off, if you would, Nick, and give us a little history of the MUCC. Yeah, so I guess first, my name is Nick Green. Uh, I'm the public information officer for Michigan United Conservation Clubs, also known as MUCC. Um, we are a conservation nonprofit 501c3 we were founded in 1937 um so right about the time you know we really had a conservation movement in the states um we had you know du was formed at that same time we were starting to develop our north american model of conservation and how we were gonna use that into the future um so it came about with uh, a conglomerate of clubs who who didn't like how we were currently appointing our director of the, I believe it was the conservation department at that time. Uh, and our, some clubs met, some representatives from clubs, and they decided there needed to be a unified voice in Michigan for, for sportsmen and sportswomen and conservationists. Um, so that was kind of where we were founded. We are nonpartisan, so we work with both Democrats and Republicans. Um, you know, we, we engage heavily at the Natural Resources Commission through rulemaking processes. Um, you know, we, we testify at each Natural Resources Commission. Um, we really have four pillars that we kind of operate under. So our most well-known is probably policy and advocacy. 
Uh, and, and to be frank, this is generally where people either love us or hate us. Um, you know, our, our policy positions are grassroots developed, uh, meaning that grassroots developed and implemented actually. So staff, you know, myself, our executive director, Amy Trotter, our policy assistant, Ian Fitzgerald, we don't sit in a room and decide, okay, you know, deer baiting is, is, is a contributor, could be a contributor to CWD. You know, what are we going to do to stop it? Um, really, it's, it's driven from our members. So our members write uh, these, these policies, um, resolutions is what we call them. And then they, they come to our annual convention each June. They go through a four-month vetting process or a, a quarterly vetting process for a year before a convention. They come to our convention. They're voted on by representatives of our membership. So we have delegates from each region, from clubs, from you know, individual members. And those policies are then, or those resolutions are then voted on. And if they are passed, those kind of become our marching orders. So that, that's how our policy process works. Uh, what we do as staff, you know, on the front end is we really identify where some key issues might be in the coming years. Uh, we help to provide any context, any scientific literature that we can to, to resolution writers. Uh, and then we really leave it to the membership and say, you know, what do you think? Um, so that's kind of policy and advocacy. And we're, I'm sure, going to talk through a lot more points of that as we work through this podcast. Um, but kind of in a high-level overview, that's kind of our first pillar. Our second pillar is education. Uh, so we have operated uh, Michigan Outdoors Youth Camp since 1946. We've, we've educated about 59,000 kids. Uh, so that is generally a, a residential week-long camp. It's, it's taken place all over the state. Currently, we're housed in the Cedar Lake Outdoor Center in the Waterloo Rec area near Chelsea. Uh, and kids get to come. And, you know, it's, it's really this, this unique place that I wish I had known about when I was a kid because they get to paddle and they get to learn about water ecology and then they get to go shoot a 22 and, and shoot clays and shoot a bow and then they go do shelter building. So it really encompasses a lot of aspects of, of conservation, not just the consumptive uses that we so often attribute, you know, to in our world of hunting, angling and fishing or hunting, trapping and fishing. Um, so along in the same vein of education, uh, with our youth camp, we also publish Tracks magazine. Uh, so this is geared towards upper elementary, really fourth through sixth grade students. Uh, each it's published eight times a year, so kind of concurrent with the school year. And we try to focus on a Michigan species each issue. Uh, and so, for example, what I just worked through yesterday was the brown garden snail, which we do not have in Michigan, but it's an invasive species. Uh, you know, the Michigan DNR is very concerned about about if it were to make its way into Michigan. So that's kind of the exception of Michigan species. We try to highlight an invasive or something we don't want here. Um, you know, I think we're doing the, the eastern wild turkey uh, next month. Um, so we, we really highlight these species, their habitats, what they need to survive, how humans interact. So that could include management, um, you know, any, any way that we interact with these species. And the idea is that we're helping kids understand that human interact and interactment and engagement with species is important. It's important on a management level. It's important on a social level. Um, we want them to be thoughtful and mindful stewards and voters as they kind of grow up to that age. And, and it's really a way to combat the PETA magazines and HSUS-esque magazines that we often see 
uh, anthropomorphizing animals and, and, you know, so it's, it's a good science based literature for younger children in along in the education vein. Some more, we have outreach days, uh, on a normal year where we aren't constrained by COVID. Uh, we, we go into schools, we, you know, present uh, furs and pelts. We do lots of, uh, you know, track identification. Um, so we do we do lots of things in education. It's another pillar we're well known for. Uh, our third pillar is communications. So that's kind of where I came on to MUCC. Uh, we, we publish Michigan Out of Doors magazine. A lot of folks probably know us and recognize Michigan Out of Doors TV, which hasn't been a part of MUCC for about a decade, I think, Jimmy. Jimmy used to be on staff, and then he went out on his own. Uh, so we still work with Jimmy. We still, you know, throw ideas back and forth. We're still both champions of conservation, but he's kind of doing his thing, and we're doing ours. Uh, but we still own and operate Michigan Out of Doors magazine. Uh, we publish weekly or biweekly, depending on what's happening in a legislature or conservation insider. So this is kind of a roundup of all of the issues surrounding conservation in Michigan. Uh, and then, you know, we do lots of interviews and nationally and regionally about kind of topics that are pressing in the conservation world in Michigan. And our fourth pillar is the field. So we have an award-winning on-the-ground program. It was recognized by Outdoor Life uh, as one of the, the kind of staple conservation programs in the United States. Uh, so this is uh, through an MOA with the Department of Natural Resources. And what we do is we gather public land stewards, volunteers, we get them all together and we do a habitat project. So this has included building habitat, uh, helping to remove invasives, um, helping, you know, remove rocks out of fields so plantings can happen, building boardwalks through gems areas for, for rough grouse so, so hunters can access rough grouse and woodcock spots easier. So we do a lot in that vein. Uh, the last few years we've, we've ran a program called On the Water, which is similar, but it's obviously geared towards riparian areas. Uh, and that, that recently ended. That was through funding from Consumers Energy Foundation. And I think, you know, we, we host an AmeriCorps member each every year, too. So we are excited to have folks who are engaged in conservation public service on staff here. That's kind of a quick rundown. I'll let you guys throw at me what you want. Um, and I sure will we'll get deeper into a lot of the policy and, and things that I touched on. Well, that was a great summary. So the four pillars are the policy and advocacy, education, communication, and field. Yes. Yeah, that's great. That was a really good explanation, Nick. Um, and funding, where does the funding come from MUCC? So we are funded primarily by memberships and grants. Um, those are our two you know, main funding sources, our membership is broken into two sects. So you have, you know, given our name, clubs, uh, in how we started, we have sportsmen's clubs, conservation organizations, uh, outdoor advocacy organizations that are clubs of MUCC. So they join and the club sends us a roster and it's $5 a head for each member. And then each person becomes a member of MUCC. Nice. With that, go ahead. No, nice. I was just saying that's interesting. And then, you know, with that, that garners access to our policy process, to all of the inside baseball in the conservation world. You know, we're, we're headquartered just a couple miles from the Capitol in Lansing. Uh, we're there whenever we need to be. Uh, we were just right before I joined, we were listening into the Senate Natural Resources Committee 
uh, weighing in on, on a wolf hunt. Um, you know, so we're here, we're doing a lot of these things and that's the benefit that I think a lot of our club members see is, you know, Hey, I've noticed something that, that doesn't, doesn't quite compute in the Michigan outdoors or natural resources world. And I want to change that. Uh, so they come to us and we help them through that policy process. And, you know, it's really a special moment when one of our members get invited into the governor's office and they get a pen that, that she or he signs the, the bill with. Um, so those are things we do regularly. The other, the other kind of um, sect of membership is individual membership. So this is uh, $35 for a year. You get four editions of Michigan Out of Doors, which is a 100-page quarterly I'm the editor of. Uh, and you also get, you know, you get the opportunity to engage in our policy process, but as an individual member. So you aren't a part of a club or a part of, a, you know, some kind of organization as a whole. You're really doing this on your own. So those are kind of our two two different memberships that we offer folks. Let, let me ask you this, Nick. Uh, in this, as we witness a very political active period in our history, and everybody has an opinion when you have a membership like this and you're you're dealing with the outdoor life there has to be some uh, opinions that differ within the organization um is the recent uptick in politi- the politics and uh has it caused some uh disagreements on the policies i mean i would yeah our political climate has certainly uh, driven engagement in a different way, but I'm hesitant to say that it's really changed the way we we've done things. I think if, if we could have these video recordings of the 1940s MUCC conventions, you would be very surprised at how animated, uh, and how abrasive some of these conversations can be at conventions. So when we, when we debate a resolution, well, that, that was just probably the Upers that were just getting out of control. Well, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't know if we've had any for them to secede recently, but that's probably been a resolution in the past. Hey, I, we've been below the bridge for a while, but still a youper, and it's it's time. But anyway. <laughs> no, I mean, it, you know, coming to our convention, it's it's just awe-inspiring to see 10 folks who, who may have shared a beer together the night before or, you know, are, are the closest of pals that hunt and, and fish together. But they'll stand at opposing microphones, so we have a for and against, and they'll duke it out. Uh, and they're not—they're not leaving things on the table. So, you know, yes, politically speaking, we're a little more tact and careful with how we talk about things as an organization. But the inner workings that set our policy—they've always been debated thoroughly. It's always, you know, there's always very strong pros and against at convention. Right. A really good example is antler point restrictions. MUCC does not have policy on antler point restrictions. Uh, that's been something that's been brought to, I've been on staff since 2017. I think each year there's been a resolution resolution to that effect brought forward and it hasn't passed. Uh, and it's important to note that things that would change a law uh, require a two thirds majority within our, our membership body. And, and the reason for that is we don't want to flip flop every year, right? So we don't want we don't want if you, you know, if you want 50 percent, it's going to flip flop just like we've seen in elections. It's going yeah, to go back so and forth. It, APRs would be a good example. You know, some years we're we're real close to having a simple majority, or we do have a simple majority, but but then the next year we don't. 
And if that were the case, we'd be flip-flopping policy policy stances every year. And that doesn't look good to legislators. That doesn't look good to the NRC when you continue to ask for different things year in and year out. Correct. Um, so that's that two-thirds majority is a really kind of fail-safe way to ensure that we're representing the, the mem- our membership in the best way that we can. Now, for our listenership, you mentioned the gym areas. You know, grouse hunters in Michigan know the gym areas. And, boy, I think we've been in – at one point, we were in all of them, weren't we, Matt? Well, they keep expanding. Yeah, so we, we missed some in the – few we haven't been, we haven't been to that are newer ones. But are there any projects going on with the gyms area that MUCC is supporting? We usually about once a year. Uh, we have a project in Gems area. So in 2000, oh goodness, nine, uh, it's COVID, 2020 is just gone. Yeah, probably 18. <laughs> yeah. 2019 or 18, we uh, had a project in the Lame Duck Gems, um, the Bacchus Creek area. Right. And then that was, that was in conjunction with our convention. So that project, we actually helped build those boardwalks that folks can use to walk the trails and access um certain areas uh i think you know we rather than talking about kind of specific projects and in our otg program does that another important point to note is at a very high level you know gems is something that we think can be successful in driving you know you know economic uh increases in michigan and bringing people to michigan um you know especially in the up uh, where those places are so wild. Um, but I think it can be a really big driver for the state. And I, I don't, we don't have policy on this, but it's something that could be explored is how do you, how do you move that to other species? Are there a way to, to, we kind of have turkey tracks in Southern Michigan, which is a similar concept. Um, you know, is there ways to expand this? And those are things we're always thinking about. And when folks come to us and say, you know, I want a better grouse hunting or I want to, you know, aside from active forest, man- forest management, which we know is a crucial and important, these are kind of the high-level points we we pitch to them. Excellent, excellent. And uh, j- just a topic that for our viewers has come up on our social media is there's talk of a lining woodcock and rough grouse small game. Um, yep. W- what's your thoughts on that? Where's it at? What are your so opinions? we. Yeah, we have a 1979 uh, policy resolution to that effect. So I'm not quite that old, um, but I do believe back when that resolution was written, we had a 60-day season, um, a woodcock season. We had a October 20th opener in Zone 3, which is kind of southern Michigan, Um so applying that 79 resolution to the current NRC, you know, debate on whether the two seasons should run concurrent is tough because things aren't the same. Uh, so we haven't, you know, we support it in that we have very basic resolutions saying these two seasons should run concurrent. Um, you know, personally, I'm, I'm very, very, uh, I'm trying to think of indebted to bird dogs and a part of this world and they're a part of who I am. Uh, so I have lots of personal feelings, and I've talked to a lot of folks, and I can see the pros and cons on both ends. So I have southern, southeast Michigan friends who may not get their prime times of hunting the woodcock flight, you know, spots that woodcock would never inhabit other than when they're migrating south or north. Um, 
you know, some of those friends may not get to hunt woodcock on their flight south. However, where I hunt in the northwest lower peninsula, it would be great to be able to maybe harvest a woodcock or two uh, during that first week or eight days or four days, however it lines up. And where um, where are we? Is there legislation looking so this through is, this? Where, where's oh, the, what's the status of it right now? Yep, sorry, we'll back up just a little bit. Uh, so at the at the March, excuse me, what month are we? at February, uh, Natural Resources Commission meeting, there was a proposal brought forward by the Department of Natural Resources to align uh, woodcock opener with the September 15th grouse opener. Uh, this is something that's been talked about for a lot of time, a long time. Al Stewart has talked about this for many years. Um, so that was brought forward to the NRC uh, for information in February. In March, they will vote, so it'll be up for action, and they will actually vote on it. So if folks have an opinion, if they want to weigh in, uh, if you Google Natural Resources Commission Michigan, you can find commissioners' emails. Uh, I would encourage folks to send a, a statement or a, you know, whatever. You can just send it in an email. You can send it as an attachment uh, and give your thoughts to those commissioners. They, they listen to those and, and they take those to heart when they're making these decisions. So we expect that that decision will be made in March. The other way people can engage is to sign up. It should be on, there should be a link on that page for the Natural Resources Commission. They can actually sign up to testify. And it's all virtual. Um, so if, if that's a route folks want to go, I would suggest kind of putting, putting together some piece of written testimony, providing that to the commissioners beforehand, and then touching on and elaborating a little bit further in their in-person testimony or virtual testimony. Um, but those things are all available to be found on the Natural Resources Excellent. Commission page. Excellent. And the other issue that's come up, it's actually come up on our podcast and on our social media for Bird Camp is the pheasant stamp. Mm-hmm. Uh, what knowledge do you have of the pheasant stamp? And where so are we? It's the same thing, yep. kind of, Nick. Where are we in the process and what's being done? Yeah, so the pheasant stamp was a MUCC-led uh, initiative when it started. Um, so in 2018, uh, in the lame duck session, which is that period uh, after an election where you have legislators who are going to cycle out, uh, but they can still do all of the things that they've been doing. They just they're, they're not going to come back for another session. So in the 2018 lame duck period, we were able to secure I believe it was 260,000 of general fund dollars, uh, and that was to fund a pilot program. A pheasant stocking initiative that would the the idea is to recruit retain reactivate hunters uh, and kind of bring pheasant hunting back to some form of what it once was uh, so that was in 2018 and 2019 we had our first pilot program uh, that was we did we planted about 5800 birds throughout i believe 11 state game areas uh, in Michigan's lower peninsula. And then we had two kind of bookend hunts that were specifically designed for gathering metrics, driving R3, which is recruitment, retention, reactivation. Uh, so these were, these were, we had mentors, we had people with bird dogs. Uh, we tried to get kids, we tried to get adult onset hunters, new people out and had a really controlled environment for those, those hunts. And that was at Allegan and Shiawassee State Game Area. So that was the first pilot year in 2019. In 2020, 
we we were supposed to have our second pilot year, uh, and then COVID struck, and the remaining general fund dollar dollars that that were going to be towards that 2020 second year of the pilot were kind of pulled back. Uh, the governor and her administration reallocated those, uh, and we didn't disagree. We didn't fight that. You know, COVID was an animal no one saw coming, um, so those were reallocated elsewhere, and we just didn't have that program in 2020. So, in you know, that's kind of what started the the talks about a pheasant stamp. Uh, and I should should probably have prefaced all this with my first day on the job. Uh, in 2017 was actually when this pheasant resolution was brought up to convention. Uh, so I, you know, really got a, my first crash course. And this was one of the things that was debated at, at, at uh, convention was, should we have a put and take program? You know, we've done this before in Michigan. Should, how, how should it be funded? You know, these were all things they debated and weighed on the floor. And it was very interesting to me to learn. And, and now here we are three years later. And we're talking about how to fund this this pheasant stocking program. Um, so we we went through the logistics of how a stamp would look and how it would work, and you know we work closely with legislators. That's that's the value of us is we have the chair of the Natural Resources Commission. You know his his contact information. He trusts us. He looks to us. Uh, so we we worked with um, Representative Howell, who's the chair of the Natural Resources Commission and came up with with a way to fund this program into the future that stamp was ran through all the legislative processes so it had to go through the house and then had to go through uh an oversight committee and then the body and then the senate and then to the governor's desk and eventually was signed Uh, so currently we do have a pheasant stamp in michigan if you are going to hunt or pursue pheasants in the lower peninsula of michigan and you are 18 years or, or older and it will be on public land, you will have to buy a stamp. So it does not apply to private land. What's the, co- not, what's the cost of that stamp? Dave? It is a $25 stamp. Okay. okay. In some of the debate on our social media, on the bird camp social media, the, the overall consensus I get is the concern is that this is going to accelerate and you're going to have to have a woodcock stamp, a sharp tail stamp, a pheasant stamp. One of the beauties of upland hunting, and I'm not taking a point here, I'm just telling you what we're hearing. One of the points of upland hunting has always been it's one of the cheapest things you can do. You know, back in the day, it was a $5. Now, I think it's a $12 or $14 pass. When we start adding all this stuff on, do you think it's a detriment to hunters when, if they want to go after multiple species of birds, they have to pick up multiple stamps? I kind of like the old sharp tail where there was no cost to it but you had the stamp. You know, when, when we talked about these things, I mean, Pheasants Forever was in the room, um, the, the Michigan Pheasant Hunting Initiative, which is who has kind of been the driver of all of this. They joined MUCC. That's who ran the resolution through. Um, you know, these are things we all weighed. Uh, personally, as a hunter myself and, who, and people who know a lot of hunters, we spend a lot of money doing things. Uh, so I don't, I don't see $25 as a barrier to entry. Um, just in the scheme, I mean, guys have $10,000 shotguns. They got $100 shotguns. I get that. But if it's something we love and we're going to do, I just, I don't, I guess the best way to put it is the metrics we have that have to do with our recruitment, retention, and reactivation, which is what we all need to be concerned about. 
that's that's how we're going to have hunting in the future for my kids. We have to recruit, retain, reactivate hunters. When you look at the barriers to en- entry through a lens of R3, and there are studies on this, a $25 stamp isn't one of those barriers to entry. A barrier to entry is not having a mentor. It's not having access to a firearm. It's not having uh, a car to get somewhere to hunt. So that's an argument we hear a lot, but I don't see a lot of facts that back it up. Okay. Okay. It, you know, everybody has their opinion. I just, uh, I'm more worried about the snowball here of it's going to get incredibly. W- w- in our camp, we have a lot of guys from uh, Indiana, actually, and it's terribly expensive for them to hunt. Yes. That is a barrier. So I guess my opinion, and I don't need to debate this with you, Nick, but my opinion is if it's a barrier for well off middle aged guys or girls to come to our state to hunt because it's a price of hundreds of dollars to hunt for a few days. It's also in my mind, a barrier at $25 for the 14 year old that's looking to go walk in the field. And so the, the 14 year old would not need a stamp. Right. Only right. You year old year above. Yeah. yeah that, that's a great point. The, so the other, the other correlation I want to point out is you're talking about, as you just said, hundreds of dollars, not $25. No, it's, so, it's a basis of uh, linear economics and vertical economics. And, to a 18-year-old in college wanting to hunt, $25 could be a lot of money or a case, yes. of, a case of beer on Friday night, which we all know. But um, I just – it's just – there has been a lot of concern that's been voiced to us, and we're not the spokesman. We're not their spokesman for sure. They're our audience. But it's just they don't want to see this accelerate. So if you're a true outdoorsman, you salmon fish, you bass fish, you turkey hunt, bear hunt, deer hunt – you know, the expense can start piling up. And we understand the money's going to a good cause. But I, I, I would challenge the barriers on my opinion only, not the, not the podcast. All right, let's move on. What about the artists? Have they chosen an artist for the pheasant stamp? <laughs> it actually will be an endorsement, I believe. So it's not going to be so a... So it's not even a real stamp. No. And, and, <laughs> and you know, I do, I do want to back up a little bit and talk about that slippery slope. Uh, that's certainly something to be mindful of. Um, however, you know, when we talk about <laughs> something to harvest woodcock, I mean, I, I would presume that that would be a federal driven thing because they're, they're, they're federally, I mean, that's, that's how they're managed. Um, but it is a concern. I mean, that is a valid point of, of when, when do things stop? Um, unfortunately, you know, again, we have a resolution at MUCC and those are our marching orders. Uh, if people don't like it and they are members of MUCC, they are more than welcome to come forward, present resolutions, you know, tie scientific-driven facts to those resolutions and put it to our membership for them to debate. Uh, it, you know, it, I, don't, I have a lot of personal opinions, as you both can imagine, as an avid bird hunter, but that's the way MUCC operates. That's why we are as strong as we are is because yes, it's, not, mm-hmm. it's not just us flip-flopping staff opinions every day it's nick, our res- it's derived directly from our membership nick that that's why i i consider what mucc does so critical and so important but you're never going to have everybody on the same page we can talk about nope. the pheasant issue we can talk about sharp tail we can talk about rough we can even talk about environment what should be done at least you're doing something 
you know, so, I mean, not least, you're doing a lot, especially with the one thing we've talked about on this podcast and we talked about in our camp for years is we don't see young people hunting birds anymore. Uh-huh. At least you're, you're, you're not, I keep saying at least, that's not what I mean. You're, you're trying to make an improvement there. You're trying to bring people in and you're, it's a good organization. You're doing great things. And, uh, we have difference of opinion on things that happens. I, I, I do want to rattle off a couple quick questions, Nick. Um, okay. And you guys mentioned you work with the DNR. Are there other hunting clubs, Rough Grouse Society? Um, who else are you working with out there from MUCC? Oh, man. Uh, I mean, so I want to caution you against saying we work with the DNR. So a good example is, you know, last March when, when Governor Whitmer and the administration instituted a boating ban, we sued Governor Whitmer and Director Eichinger who was the former MECC executive director. So yes, we work with them. We have a very good professional relationship, but we're not afraid to, uh, you know, slap them around if we need to. Um, we, we also, you know, we work with Ducks Unlimited. We work with Rough Grouse Society. We work with, uh, I mean, you name it. We work with them. Pheasants Forever. We work with lots of organizations. Uh, and that's, that's kind of a testament to what MECC is. And that's been, both helpful and a hindrance because we are so broad and specific. That's what I touched on when folks hear MUCC, a lot of times they say, well, they supported this. So therefore I don't like them instead right, of looking at the whole, the whole landscape. And the whole that, that's what I was alluding to done. Nick. Um, I'm not talking with you and me, but I may have some differences on one minor topic, but you got to look at the whole thing. You look at your four pillars of policy, advocacy, education, communication in the field. There's a lot there, and it's not just birds. It's deer and fish, right? It's yeah. it's it's yeah. habitat. I think a lot of times people get too caught up in one little point, um, especially politically and socially. You got, and I, I agree entirely with you, Nick. You got to step back and look at the whole organization and who else is out there doing this, but MUCC. Well, Ducks Unlimited, obviously, and other organizations. And you do work with those organizations. We do, and, and again, the, the difference is we're just, we, we encompass them all, so that's a lot of times the struggle is that <coughs> your guys aren't always going to love us, and, and I will say for every avid bird hunter out there in Michigan and probably most of the, wood, most of the Midwest, uh, start yelling at your deer hunters. They're driving a lot of these conversations, and they're the biggest license-buying cohort in Michigan. You know, they fund the most conservation dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so when we, we, we talk about things like active forest management, which is also very beneficial to deer, but getting it done on a level we want to see for birds, uh, you know, we got to get deer hunters on board because yeah. the, you know, they're just, they're the, they're the ones who pay a lot of the bills and they're important to conservation in Michigan. And without them, we would have a shell of what we currently have. Well, that's a great point. They're, they're the driver. They're the prime one. Um, I couldn't even tell you who's who was uh, second. Probably fishing would be second, I guess, after deer hunting. But tur- tur- well, fishing. Tourism. So two different yeah. kind of fawns. They go yeah. into fishing game. Um, in the hunting realm, it would be deer and then turkeys. Uh, yeah. But certainly angling. I mean, it's just a it's a public perception thing, man. If you if you ask if you ask folks if they support hunting or support fishing, as you can imagine, a vast majority more are going to support fishing. Um, and it doesn't matter if you present them with the fish that they're going to eat or uh, a breast of a rough grouse they're going to eat. For some reason, there's just this socio kind of support for fishing. 
And it's something we as hunters need to be mindful of. So when we're taking tailgate pictures that have blood and when we're kind of exposing the raw sides of hunting, we just need to be mindful about who we're seeing those, you know, because as we get into wolf debates and as we get into <laughs> lots of things, public perception is huge. And unfortunately, yes, we want to use scientific driven management for these species, but it's hard to ignore when you look at a dove debacle like we had and we couldn't show up hunters to the polls. Yep. You know, I mean, we have to be mindful of the antis and the other side and we don't always have to agree, but we have to be appreciative and artful about how we're presenting our way of life to them. Correct. So you're probably watching what's going on in Wisconsin with the wolf hunt, right? I am. Yeah. They just closed their season last night, I believe. And that was preemptive close, right? Yes, it was. Uh, they had 119 tags, I believe, available for uh, the general public. And then I believe there were 81 tags that were available uh, to the tribes. And they, I think they harvested 80 something and they closed it, uh, assuming that there were going to be folks, you know, hound hunting at night and, and trapping. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's some good data for for you guys and for for Michigan in general, you know, because there's obviously a problem in the UP. There, you know, we we have lots of UPers. Uh, our former president was a UPer. We have several UPers on our board. Um, you know, wolves is just something that we've we've been heavily engaged in for the last decade. Um, you know, currently we we haven't weighed in on whether there should be a 2021 hunt. Um, so what we're really waiting for is the, the director's appointment to the Wolf Advisory Council, um, figuring out how the lit review is going to go. You know, we really appreciate it at the February Natural Resources Commission meeting. Uh, Commissioner Nyberg, who's actually from Marquette, I believe, um, he brought a resolution forward and it was passed unanimously asking the department to move up the timeline on their wolf management plan and we appreciate that and support that you know we don't think it should take till next june to do something that we did five years ago you know so these are all very intricate things we have litigation going on nationally um you know what we have learned through this process is if you rush it you open yourself up to lawsuits right um so there's a way to do things and that's kind of where we're at right now and in mucc understands how to strategically you know insert itself into these these processes and, and how they have to go and the way they have to go so that they can stand up to litigation right let me let me come in with the uh, couple questions here then uh, we'll have a fun one at the end um, <laughs> MUCC is running a gun gun contest an annual your annual convention um, Touch on those real briefly, and then if you could, please just let us know um, how anybody from our audience, we call our audience the Covey, so is how, how can they get involved, how can they get in touch? This is where you want to guide everybody to the websites or social media. So, Yeah, can you touch on the gun contest again? I didn't quite understand that question. On your website, there's like, uh, was it Gun of the Month? Are you guys still doing okay, that? Okay, yeah. yeah. Our, yep, so we have an ongoing sweepstakes right now, so what we do is... We give away a gun a month each year, uh, and then we also give away two gift cards to Jay's Sporting Goods. So that is one of our major appeals. As I said, our, our funding comes from fundraising, membership dollars, grants. Uh, fundraising is one of those mechanisms by which we operate. 
And so that's that's what that is. It's a it's a fundraiser. It's meant to always happen kind of at the end of the year. Um, if folks are interested in getting in on that, you know, we suggest we suggest a donation, but it is a sweepstakes, so you do not have to donate to be eligible. Uh, you can call us, and our our receptionist Sue can help kind of get you on board. Um, second question, sorry, I, I wrote it down and can't read my scribbles. <laughs> you, you have an annual convention. I'm just kind of curious how that's happening with COVID and everything. And yeah, in in 2020, we moved to a kind of this virtual hybrid format where where we had resolutions uh, come forward, but none failed. So if they didn't pass by that two-thirds majority or needed that, or there are resolutions that require a simple majority if we don't have to change the law. Um, if they passed by these preset majorities that were actually higher than our bylaw normal standards, then they then they become resolution if they didn't they didn't fail but they went on to the 2021 convention so we are moving forward this year with hopefully an in-person convention uh, as you can imagine when you have these very intricate and delicate topics it's important to have in-person debate it's important to see people and be able to see their mannerisms and read body language and you know that's a, a critical part of who MUCC is and, and how our power. When and where are you? Do you have the plans yet for that? I know it's probably all up in the air. Yeah, so our convention is going to be at Treetops in Gaylord. Uh, and I can I can pull up the dates here in just a second. It'll be June... 24th or 28th? Is that what I read? June 25th through 27th. Ooh, you're close. Oh, that was dangerously close. <laughs> <laughs> so... I amused that, myself. Sorry, Nick. At my no. age, you know, I was probably in high school when MUCC started. So, <laughs> at my age, to get a date close to right, we just both put our hands up. It's like, ooh, good deal. So, yeah, it's in June. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yep. So we're we're moving forward with hopefully an an in person annual convention, and what that usually entails is kind of a Friday night potluck. We'll get together. We'll probably have some folks from Jays there. We'll have from folks from the Gaylord CVB there, um, and we'll kind of just have a gathering. And then Saturday is really where the sausage gets made. That's the you know people duking it out on opposing microphones. That's where resolutions are brought forward. Uh, we kind of culminate Saturday evening in an awards dinner. Uh, so that's you know we recognize those among us who have had significant contributions to conservation, whether through many years or through just the year behind us. Um, you know, that's where the Michigan Conservation Hall of Fame, MUCC, houses that. That's something we started. That's where some of those folks uh, come from. Uh, we do, like, Wildlife Conservationist of the Year. Uh, we're, we're talking about right now how do we how do we get Al Stewart something uh, for all of his years of service to the Michigan Michigan DNR and that, Upland that, Game Birds. That's yeah, got to be something, something big because that's a lot of years of service. We've had Al, it is. Al on. He was a great and, guest for us. Oh, my God. He's just an incredible wealth of knowledge. So, <laughs> and, and then and we, I, we I, hope, I, hope, I hope the state yep. is looking for a replacement for Al at some point because we're going to need those are big shoes we're going to have to fill. So this is something MUCC does not have policy on, uh, and it is of my personal interest that we probably should have an upland game bird biologist. I mean, we're a top producer for American woodcock. We're the top harvester. Uh, we're a top producer for ruffed grouse. We have pheasants. We have turkeys. Um, Sharp it tail. will be interesting. We have sharp-tailed grouse. <laughs> it will be. Sorry. I always forget about sharp-tail. I spent some time in Drummond the last few years, and 
you know, we always want to make it a point when we're done, like, oh, we're going to stop in that eastern UP and hunt sharp tail. And then Sunday comes around, and after we've trudged around on the rock for a few hours, we're like, nah, we're, yeah, we're we, going That's a good plan. Stick with that plan. We like that. We like that. <laughs> stay, stay over there on the rock. Stay that's, away from your sharp tails. That's right. Yeah, that, that's where our heritage is from, our families from the eastern UP. Okay. So, so. Well, speaking of that, um, so you bird hunt, obviously. Uh, do, do you have bird dogs? I do. I have a small Munsterlander. I have a German short-haired pointer, and I have Labrador Retriever. Three of them. Three of them. Wow. I do, and I, I actively train Who, them. Who's, who's, uh, so the, I, who's the boss between the three? Oh, probably my lab because she's the female. Yeah, yeah there you that's go. That's usually there. how it is. Yeah. <laughs> I got so three I, as well in the female. I got two boys and a girl, and the female's in charge by far. Uh, his female gets upset when I sit in his right seat in the front because that's her chair, and she'll sit. Yeah. She'll actually sit in the truck and stare at me for hours. <laughs> it's just like get on my seat. I'm the boss. You're in my seat. Get in the back. But that's great. Uh, we do uh, have one bit we do almost in every podcast, and we'd like you to participate if you have one. And is telling us a story. We call it best, uh, first best or last. Your first grouse, your best grouse, or the last one. Do you have a cool story you can tell us? It doesn't have to be a grouse. It could be a pheasant, woodcock, or anything. I do, and I. Uh, it's actually kind of it's two firsts, uh, and it's. I wrote a story about this several years back. I think it was in RGS's magazine, and, and we published as well. But it was titled "My First Last Grouse." So I can remember when I was. I, I I've I was actually about, read that. Yeah, I sent that yep. to you. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say I've read, that was a good story. Yeah, it was. Well, thank you. Go go so ahead. I, please tell us uh, quickly as you can. So. Yeah. So when I was twelve, I remember going out with my grandpa, uh, and we kind of had a grouse scurry across the road into some alders, and he gave me this four ten break action. I had never, sh- I had shot birds, but out of trees. Uh, I was twelve. I had my my was then able to small game hunt. That's how old you used to have to be. Uh, so. He gave me that 410. The bird got up. Somehow I hit it. Uh, I don't know how. And, you know, that was after that. I don't really remember harvesting any grouse until I was, oh, geez, 27. So 15 ish years later. Uh, and we rescued our small Munsterlander. And I had my, my bird camp as I do every year on the Manistee River. And, you know, we had a hard day of hunting, lots of flushes. He's, he was a new dog, never had grouse hunted when we, when we got him. Uh, and he stuck a point within hundred yards of the camper and a grouse got up and I hit it. Uh, and just all those emotions of that, that harvest with my grandpa 15 years prior kind of came running back to me. Uh, and that was a really special moment. It was Calvin's first, first bird on the wing. Um, you know, it was just, it was a cool moment. That's awesome. The dog's name's Calvin. His name is Calvin. Yeah. Is, is the next one, name. is the next one going to be Hobbs? That would be just beautiful. <laughs> you know, that's. I think setters are in the future for me. I hunt with a lot of setters. Uh, I do like the versatility of versatile dogs, but right, right. You know, having a lab, I don't really need another dog that can go retrieve ducks. Uh, you know, Calvin didn't come from the Detroit Lions. Oh, it could have. Yeah. Could be Calvin Coolidge. We don't know. Yeah, it that's could be. Well, that's that's a nice story, and uh, um. To hunt with your grandfather and get your first beard, um, I can't mm-hmm. imagine that. That's just powerful. And hopefully, if you have a family, that you pass that on down. And uh, that's that's the whole. Yeah, Nick, you're a wonderful spokesman for MUCC. You're 
you're really well read and educated and you know the issues and uh, don't get the issues wrong. Like I said, everybody has different opinions on issues. And I'll give you one example. We ran into some trappers. Oh my gosh, this was on Drummond Island. On Dr- Oh no no no, 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 no. It was just, this, this just off Drummond Island. On Rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But it's anyway, from Drummond Island. you almost said the word. Don't say the word. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Nick will go there. But uh, we were on some birds, and uh, we were getting ready to come out of the woods, and I, I saw something you rarely see. There was a little bit of snow on the ground, and a rough grouse had come out from underneath a tree and fanned and tried to dust bathe. Oh, yeah, and my dog was, my uh, Llewellyn was on it. She was on it, nice. and, I, and I'm showing Matt, I'm saying, look at this. You never hardly see this. This is this is a this is a wing fan, and they were dusting, and you, you could see it plainly. And right then, these trappers come running yeah, up Yeah, they drove up in their truck and, like, slammed on the brakes. And we were out, like, kind of in the middle of nowhere on oh, we, we were trails. deep. Like, get we out were, of there, get out of there. We're, we're like, we're on state land. We're like, what do you mean? We're on birds here. And we were, the truck was like 60 yards to where they parked, where our truck was. And Matt was going back to get his phone. It was like, we got to get a picture of this for the podcast. You don't see this very often where the bird was dust bathing. You could just see a perfect Mm -hmm. elliptical shape. Well, they came running up and said, we we got trap lines. Now, I can't think of people further apart outdoors than trappers and upland hunters. I mean, that's a pretty wide gap. These it were is. the, they were actually from down here in our area, but they were the best guys. They said, we just want to help you guys out. We have traps set there. You got a dog. Yeah. And they were wonderful guys. We really appreciate them. But see, even diversity of your hunting where our trap, everybody got along. It was great. Uh-huh. It was fine. You know, so there's differences of opinions and different people, but we do appreciate you coming on. We'll probably ask you to come back at some point in time. Especially as some of these issues will probably heat up as they always do, right, Nick? Yeah, I mean, they're you know we're constantly in this world of of evolution and de-evolution sometimes. Um, <laughs> well, so you know, it, it, things happen. Things happen quickly. Carry the good fight. We we need the land. We need the people out there. We need people involved, and you guys do a good job at that. And we appreciate it. So, with that, well, Nick, we're, we're going to we're going to sign off. We've it, reached. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Nick? No, I, w- I would just say for those of your folks who, who maybe aren't in Michigan, um, you know, there are other organizations like ours. We are the biggest state-specific conservation organization, um, but there's lots of, you know, Indiana Wildlife Federation, Wisconsin Wildlife Federation. Those are a lot of our affiliates that we also work with. Um, so if you're interested in these kind of topics and grassroots-driven policies, um, those are places to start looking within your state. Okay, excellent. Great. And that's Nick Green, Public Information Officer for MUCC and an editor at Michigan Outdoor Magazine. Um, we really appreciate your time, Nick, and we're going to sign off and hope hope to have you soon. And welcome to the Cubby. Thank you so much. Well, we want to thank uh, Nick Green for the MUCC for coming on, and uh, that was very very interesting. And it looks like we're going to hopefully have some more interaction with the MUCC to help with the conservation and the education and bringing hunting to young people. Now we're going to move in towards the end of the episode. and we This ha- is what y'all been waiting for, the big contest. It's the big contest. Look how many we had come in. Uh, again, we haven't gotten to all these. Right out of the Stormy Cromer hat. Right out of the Stormy Cromer hat. We're going to pick our winner for first you should best. Howard take it. All right, Howard. <laughs> There you go. Yeah, right. <laughs> Cold, dead hands. This is our first, best, and last. Uh, the stories we've been reading um, that came on, we read from Rudy last time. Was it Rudy? That was right. 
No. No, that's not Rudy. Rudy's <laughs> a football movie. <laughs> I had it written down here. Um, but we've been reading and telling stories and having our guests tell their first grouse story, their best grouse story, or their last grouse story. So this is our winner. And what do they win, Matt? They win a subscription, an elite subscription to Onyx. One-year subscription. It's a $99 value that Onyx has been nice to give to us to pass on through this contest. So here we go. Without further ado, we got a mixture of shotgun shells in here. There's names in the shotgun shells. Doing this all on up. It's in the beautiful new Stormy Cromer hat. And we're going to reach in here. We'll shuffle them up. There's some 12, 16s. There's a whole bunch of crap in there. Let's try this one. If I can get the paper out of there, I shoved in there. That's not working. There that, it is. that was a good idea you had to put in the shotgun. That was your idea. Do <laughs> <laughs> this. The winner. I don't have a drum roll on here. It's I got applause. It's not bad. The winner of the Onyx one-year free subscription. What level do you remember? Elite. Elite subscription for coming on the Bird Camp podcast and telling their first, best, or last story is Christopher Ingram. Oh, how about this one? There we go. There we go. Now, if I remember right, and what my notes say, Chris sent his first woodcock and first grouse story, and he sent those on audio. He did. Which is kind of helpful, and we're going to put one of those. Okay, I'll just put that after this then. Okay, we'll put uh, Chris's uh, audio up there, and Chris... We will send you the information for your free Onyx Maps Elite subscription. I was trying to say prescription. That's a different thing. That's but only if you had the COVID-19 show. Not yet. Um, so, uh, Chris, well, great stories. We loved them. Yep. I'll yeah. follow up. I'll send you the code, and then uh, you should be all set. And, and, what, and we're kind of to the wrap-up, aren't we? Yeah, that's the wrap-up. Congratulations again to him, and uh, we're going to just wrap up the video, but on the podcast, we're going to follow up with... Uh, did he send... Is he the guy that sent two stories in? Yeah, he on the podcast, we're going to put Chris Ingram's two stories. One was his first well, we'll Woodcock. Just, we'll play just one. We'll play it as one, but he has two stories, Woodcock We'll play the other one Grouse. some other time. And they're both good stories. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you want to wrap this up, or I can do it either way, Kevin. Go ahead. Well, if you want to get a hold of us, check out our um, merchandise. We have merchandise. We have a shirt. Kevin's wearing a shirt, so is Howard. And that's at our website. It's uh, www.birdcamp, all one word, birdcamp.net. We also have a Facebook page. Just search Birdcamp. Instagram, same thing. We have this YouTube channel. You found us there. Um, our podcast, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, via Apple, Spotify, Anchor, there's different platforms. Um, we also, as a reminder, for our patrons via Patreon, which you can be linked to through our website, we have our Bark River Knife Contest. We're going to give that away September 15th at our uh, mid-September podcast. And uh, that knife is probably sitting in my mailbox right now. It is en route. Yep. It was sent, and we are going to send it to an engraver after that, but we'll uh, definitely be highlighting that on the YouTube channel as right. well as our website. Right. Um, we appreciate Bark River and the knife. And If you guys want to get a hold of us, we appreciate any feedback. Uh, you can use our website. It's got direct communications on there. Like I said, it's... Uh, birdcamp.net and then uh, our email is mi.birdcamp at gmail.com but that's pretty much it on how to get a hold of us we appreciate you guys listening and uh, we'll see you on the next podcast 15 out hey what's up guys this is Chris Ingram from Vermont I uh, 
was interested in sharing a story. Uh, the first ruffed grouse that I killed um, is kind of a, a funny story and a very important story to me because it was something that happened uh, with a, a mentor of mine. Um, so this was a, a couple years back and it was kind of my first season really getting into it. <clears throat> and I have a, a, a friend here is a little bit older than me, but um, he runs Springers and is very serious about running his dogs. He runs them in field trials and travels all over the country. And um, so I've been out on some training sessions with Pat and his dogs and um, had always kind of wanted to hunt with him. Um, I don't have a dog yet. And so it's been a, a bit of a challenge to, you know, move some grouse and woodcock during the hunting season. But um, so I kind of let Pat know that I was interested in going hunting with him and, uh, you know, kind of left that, that line open. And so I, I think I had taken a day off of work or, uh, for some reason was home and laying around on the couch and got the text from Pat, uh, you want to go hunting? Um, was thinking about going to my woodcock spot and, uh, you know, of course I obliged, um, was happy to take the opportunity to go with him. Um, but was kind of in the back of my mind, selfishly hoping to go on a grouse hunt. Um, I hadn't killed a grouse yet, and um, I might have said something to him as well. So anyways, he, uh, he, we're lining the plans up, and he says, you know, meet me at this place at this time, and I texted him. I said, are you sure, you know, this is the right place? And I, you know, I said, I think you got it confused, and he said, no, 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 that's it. You know, we'll see you there. So uh, he was wrong because I went to where I thought I was supposed to be, and he went where he was, and it was two different places. So um, we kind of started off that whole experience with a bit of a laugh. And so I said, well, I'm here, you know, why don't we come up this way? And again, you know, knowing there's some grouse covers nearby. Uh, so he came up that way and we we went to a few spots in the uh, Green Mountain National Forest here in Vermont and, um, you know, kind of kind of hit a, a quick cover, um, moved to Woodcock, didn't didn't get him, you know, took some shots, but, and was kind of thinking about, you know, well, where can we go from here? You know, we've, we've got some time left in the afternoon. And, um, I had actually brought up the Onyx map This is something I had just started using. And, um, you know, it's, it's awesome to see the different places you can go. The boundaries are clearly defined, you know, ownerships. And I said, well, let's go up this way here. And, uh, you know, he said, well, I, I think there's a place I used to go. Um, haven't been back in years, but would would definitely be worth going into. So, you know, using the Onyx put us right where we need to be. Um, this was late October. It was a beautiful bluebird, sunny day, you know, nice, crisp fall air. Um, the, the kind of day that you just don't want to miss. And, uh, you know, beautiful scenery here in Vermont. The old stone fences, old apple orchards that are, are growing up, just prime cover. Uh, it certainly looks to us to be that way anyways. And we parked on the side of the road and closed the truck door, and wouldn't you know it, but a drummer sounded off. And so that really kind of set the tone and the anticipation for me. So we put on our orange and, and cut the dog loose, and it wasn't too long. Um, I think we got a flush we readjusted and uh, this massive pine tree that um, was kind of obscuring my view. But when the dog went in, put the bird up, um, Pat knocked the bird down 
And uh, so that was really kind of neat for me to see the whole process unfold. You know, um, I had a few wild grouse flushes, but to see it now with the dog uh, was just really special. And, you know, we took some photos and kind of celebrated that moment. And I thought, this is it. You know, we're in the right place. Things are starting to come together. There might be a chance that I might be getting my first grouse today. So we kept moving through the cover and moved a few woodcock, uh, which was great. Kind of unexpected, um, but really neat to see the, the two birds in the same location. And, uh, boy, they eluded us pretty quickly. I might have fired some shots, but didn't connect with uh, with those woodcock. And uh, kind of traipsed through the cover, and there's a short linear cover. We got to the end of it, and we're able to cross the road. And uh, once we once we got across the street there, um, we we moved a bird, and it must have been a grouse because it was quick. You know, it just got a, a, a flash of of a sight there. And so kind of had an idea of where it landed, and we were, we're walking through, and, and I was on the right side. I had the dog to my left and Pat beyond him. And we're kind of walking through, and, and I ended up stopping at one point just to kind of check my bearings and see where everything is at. And out from a deadfall from my right side, straight in a line to my right, bird took off. And I, I turned, I swung, I saw... And I emptied my my double barrel, and this bird kind of flew off. I didn't see it pick up. I didn't see it drop. It just kind of sailed off into the grass. And I kind of kept my mark, and I just had a good feeling that there was a, there was a bird possibly in there. So we started walking over, and. Um, uh, the dog, the Springer with a stub tail there, kind of dove off into the grass. And he kind of stopped, and all I could see was the tail, this little stub tail, just twitching frantically. And I knew that my bird was in there. And uh, Griffin uh, grabbed it and came out, and I just, I just lost it. It was the culmination of, you know, years of my own time putting in after these birds and reading and researching and you know making connections and developing friendships and like I said just the, the the laughable you know set of circumstances that came to be for for us to be there and uh, boy what a what a moment just the just a beautiful day and I really appreciated being out there with Pat and his dogs and uh, I took kind of took a time to to revel in the moment and and savor everything and uh it was great because uh, you know we we took some photos we we talked about it and um, you know it being a small cover and wanting to leave some birds uh, for next year or for the next hunter to come through that was kind of it and um, it was just just a, a great way to to end the day and to get through the season and um, just a memory that I will have forever so want to say thank you to Pat and and Griffin for for that and look forward to hunting with again look forward to hunting with you again out there Pat thank you thanks for listening to our podcast if you'd like to enter the knife contest check it out at patreon forward slash bird camp leave us some feedback which we would appreciate our email is mi.birdcamp at gmail.com 
Check us out on our social media platforms. We're on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for BirdCamp. Our website is www.birdcamp.net. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next show. See ya.